Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. I'm Dr. Melissa Boswell. And I'm Dr. Hannah O'Day. And we're researchers at Stanford University. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Boom. Welcome to Boom. Where we have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 Melissa, I have a research fail. I haven't been able to reliably collect muscle activity, energy expenditure, and kinematics in my gait experiments. Yeah, that's a lot of things at once. Have you looked into using the new Delsys Trignolink? It allows you to integrate with many different biomechanical and physiological tools together. Oh, Delsys. Yeah, I've used their EMGs before. I didn't know about this Trignolink module for integrating those different types of data streams, though. That sounds super helpful. Yeah, and it's just as easy to use and reliable as their other tools. And if our listeners would like to enter the draw and have a chance at winning some of the latest Delsus equipment, they can visit delsus.com slash boom. Hey, today we are really excited to be talking with Antonia Zaffirio. Antonia earned her BE in mechanical engineering at the Cooper Union and her PhD at the University of Southern California. She completed a postdoc fellowship at the University of Michigan before joining Rush University Medical Center as a research faculty member. And currently, she's assistant professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering at Stevens Institute of Technology. And we know each other, I guess almost, like, how does that work? Siblings in ISB, we're both student representatives, so <laughs> <laughs> Antonia was really helpful um, when, when I was a student representative of the International Society of Biomechanics and giving, passing her wisdom down from her experience <laughs> with that. So it's been great to get to know you in that way, and thank you so much for being with us on Boom today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor, and I'm excited to share whatever wisdom I might have or just share stories as well. <laughs> <laughs> you, I'm, we, we know you have a lot of wisdom and it'll be fun to uncover it. It's so great to meet you, Antonia. Uh, this is kind of our first official meeting. I like that you have some origins with Melissa. And so we'll go back to your even before that origins <laughs> of when you first knew you wanted to be a biomechanist. Yeah, thanks so much. I'll have to dig deep to remember because I think it was, <laughs> I, yeah, I think it was in like AP physics that I found out about a wow. textbook, The Physics of Ballet. And I think that was like the first hint that biomechanics existed. So growing up as a dancer and loving to learn how things work, I was right after that AP physics class off to study mechanical engineering. And that's really like the, I got so lucky. I was in a, in a class freshman year where my professor, who was an adjunct, was also a sports biomechanist. So I was really lucky that I landed in that section out of many sections, and I found out about the field of biomechanics as a 17-year-old. That's amazing. It's incredible that now your research does also still, or it has incorporated dance, and even to the point, I think one of my highlights from an International Society of Biomechanics Congress before was you helping orchestrate this dance performance mm -hmm. where we're also looking at biomechanics. And I think that was just something so unique and I had never seen anything like that before. So it's really amazing to see how you've been able to blend these two worlds together. Yeah, thank you. I've been very privileged to have that connection between the arts and engineering as well, because at Cooper Union, it was engineering and still is engineering, art and architecture schools. So we were always kind of mixing and there always could be more of that, too, bringing art and engineering together. 
Yeah, I completely agree. Could you tell us a little bit about what the current projects are that that are going on in your lab? Sure. Our lab focuses on how people regulate and control their momenta. And that's a purposely vague (laughs) description. (laughs) (laughs) More recently, we've been developing sound-based biofeedback. So we're trying to leverage the power of music and provide biomechanical cues through music. So those are, that's like the scope of the research in our lab. But then, of course, we have many different projects, especially as our lab grows. So we have one pretty big project where we are uncovering how young and older adults balance while turning while walking. And then we're also developing sound-based biofeedback to provide balance cues to people as they turn. So that's one really big project in the lab. It has um, multiple students working on it now. The other branch of research, since we're interested in how people rotate their bodies and regulate momenta during turns, we have other athletic branch of research where we have one student who's studying baseball pitching biomechanics, and that should be clarified, one doctoral student working on that. And then multiple undergrads and master's students are really excited about that line of research and and pitching. And the other passion for this one student who's a doctoral student is actually basketball dunking. So we're learning all sorts of new things about how basketball players do running jumps and dunks. Wow, what a spread. It's so cool to yeah see the different ways that you're incorporating biomechanical themes in those different applications. I think we saw that your lab was recently awarded an NSF Career Award for the second project you mentioned, the adaptive sonification to improve balance during everyday mobility that you mentioned, and you mentioned turning a lot. So we're just a little curious about why you're specifically studying turning mechanics. Why is that interesting to you or the field, and what progress are you making, or what are your goals there? Yeah, and and how did how did sound come about as something mm-hmm. to help improve that? Like I had, I just haven't heard of you know, anything yeah. <laughs> like that before. And it seems, yeah, it's so fascinating. So I'm just so curious how that came about. Yeah, I'll start with why turns. So depending on our environment, up to 50% of our steps that we take are kind of contributing or part of turns. So it's a really important daily activity. And from a mechanic standpoint, sometimes the mechanical objectives to turn directly conflict with the mechanical objectives to maintain balance. So balance is facilitated when your center mass is nicely within and above your base of support and turns is they're facilitated and initiated when your center mass is kind of far away from your base of support. If your base of support is the um, place where you're generating forces to rotate your body. So that gets a little bit technical. um, But for me, that's really the fascination is like, what do bodies do when they have more than one objective at a time? And when I was a PhD student, this will tap into the follow-up question of like, where did the sound part come from? When I was a PhD student, I found out mm. about sonified biofeedback by interacting with folks in the cinema school at USC who were using sonification for entertainment purposes. And we got together and we started talking about how, you know, when people are walking around and navigating an environment, their visual system's pretty busy their haptic systems are pretty busy as well, but is there an opportunity to provide cues through sound? And there are other reasons that support sonified biofeedback and the use of music and 
movement training, but that that's kind of the origin of I didn't even know about sonification, but I was lucky to be interacting with the people in the cinema school who were developing these really amazing immersive soundscapes for entertainment purposes. Whoa. That's really amazing. And then and can you talk more about what exactly is the biofeedback that you're getting people or giving people and then how is that affecting their balance and balance during turning specifically? Right now we're in a phase of um, user-centered design, which I guess will always continue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, we're in a phase where we're now inviting older adults to come into the lab and give us open-ended feedback about the design. We're asking them to interact with it, and I'll define what it is in a moment, but just kind of moving with the sound biofeedback and asking them, what, what were your first impressions? And we specifically ask for impressions so they can share feelings or thoughts right away. And we're getting all sorts of different responses to the sound prototypes. Right now, we have two. One of them conveys angular momentum through the pitch of string instruments that are like pre-recorded by the BBC Orchestra. There's like a plug-in for this sound generating software that we use. And so basically, when you're using it, you turn into the cello or you turn into the violin or the chord of string instruments. The thing that we're we're learning, of course, is that angular momentum is a really abstract concept for people. <laughs> hmm. So we're playing around with and, you know, playing around scientifically to see if there's a good balance between finding a, a balance metric that is understandable and useful at the same time. So that one one prototype with angular momentum conveyed through string instruments and their pitch, that one is pretty understandable for people when they're mainly their feet are in place and they're swaying side to side as an example. But when we start walking, this angular momentum of the body fluctuates quite quickly, actually. So even though it might be a a variable we value as biomechanists to understand how people are controlling their their body's rotations, it might not be the best to convey through sound. But of course, mm. you know, we're, we're early in the stage of finding feedback from the older adults. And we always have a, a consulting physical therapist present. So we're also hoping to engage them more in the design feedback as well, because it could be that maybe angular momentum's abstract for the, the end user, but maybe it's really valuable for the clinician to hear what that angular momentum is at different points in time as people walk and turn. So lots to learn. And that was only, I only described one prototype by accident. The other one uses the speed of a drum beat that increases when the center of mass reaches the outside edge of the base of support. So it's like a horizontal Mm. distance between Mm. the center of mass and, and the outside edge of the feet. Wow. Those are such, and I love that you're asking for impressions. I can already imagine myself using those things and how I might push the limits or like, I don't even know, even try to create some kind of song I could see um, using those two different things. But I'm curious if you can share, can you share some of the impressions you've had from people interacting with these prototypes? They vary, as we would expect. <laughs> yeah. People feel very strongly about sounds and they also, you know, we're, we have to learn how to best describe the sounds before they are like turned on in the system as well, because um, p- 
people hear musical biofeedback and they expect that their walking is going to sound like a symphony. So we do receive some feedback of like, this is more like <laughs> That's what, yeah. musical instruments rather than music. I was like, okay, fair, <laughs> fair. Um, and we do have like, We've been recording the sessions just like so we can capture also facial expressions if they change too. And we have like a number of people that are really playing with the system in order to figure out how it works. And we have the best videos of people with these giant smiles on their face. And then we ask them, what's their first impression? And they're like, well, that was annoying. Right. So, so we really have some yeah, very like something isn't connected there. Yeah, yeah, we really have some very responses. But so far it is fair to say that the angular momentum was a little bit ambitious and maybe we need to go to like the positional um domain where it's more like the amount of sway of the body rather than the you know, momentum is more the, the on the speed domain rather than like the angle. So it's more on like angular velocity. So I think I think we were a little ambitious to try using the angular momentum at first. That that has been one theme that has come out of the participants, but really we're early and we've only had we've had amazing participants. They're all extremely active so far. The ones who have opted into the study are like biking seven, ten hours a week. So they're really active wow. older adults <laughs> who have far more physical activity than myself and some of my students <laughs> so we definitely it's, it's too early to really kind of thematically make decisions out of like a thematic analysis of this but we're mm. you can't help you're in the room so you you do realize oh there's some patterns here with with some of what pe- people are sharing for their impressions that makes sense i'm curious what your vision is like maybe the impressions and prototyping is still early but what is your like sort of long term vision for this type of technology are you hoping to find better ways to train people or is it this could be something that they could use every day or sort of what is your vision what's a home run thanks yeah thanks for asking that we always have to have like a direction of this like futuristic vision so my <laughs> mine i have like two layers of the vision for this research one is that you know, your grandmother wakes up in the morning and takes a few steps in the kitchen and her personalized music sounds different that day. And then she realizes, okay, I have to go for a tune-up. That's my cheesy joke of the day, tuning the, the movement while tuning, <laughs> tuning the music. But that's one futuristic vision where I really do think that that it could happen because we're we're getting closer and closer with the wearable technologies and with the ability to truly like personalize our biomechanical interventions. That's the at-home futuristic vision. And then the lab, I really want the lab to become like a community movement training center where people can come to movement training class, build some, you know, social networks for different groups in our community who are, are struggling to balance. So it doesn't have to be older adults. It could be people with Parkinson's. It could be children with autism spectrum disorder. There are many people who struggle to balance, especially during turns. So the long-term vision for the, the lab, it's really to be an outward facing community center where we share our science and engage everyone in the science. That's the real driving force for us too. thinking about those things. I love that vision. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was actually just talking to somebody about how they were there. One of their projects is making an audible survey for older adults because mm-hmm. they tend to maybe that's easier than like filling out a survey or something like that. But this kind of reminded me of that. Yeah, that 
audible feedback and I've seen different types of of biofeedback, whether that's like vibratory or visual, but it seems like sonified would be particularly, you know, maybe particularly beneficial for older adults as well and seems very accessible too. And it, it really does bring in, I think, this connection to in a way that's hard to quantify but I feel like we like you're saying people have strong reactions to sounds and music and I feel like we do have this sort of innate connection to music and it you know whether I feel like I hear a sound of music and then I just automatically want to start moving but it's kind of a different way of um, interacting with it when it's like your movements are actually creating mm-hmm. the music yeah we have so many research questions really it's going to we're going to be busy with sound-based biofeedback. Some of the reasons supporting um, using sound, and it's not like sound, it's not always sound versus visual or sound versus haptic. I do think that there's yeah. a lot of opportunities for multimodal biofeedback, especially mm-hmm. as we personalize biofeedback. In the brain, there are the direct connections between auditory and motor sections of the brain. There are also studies that are ongoing. I think there's a really interesting study with the NIH now where, or supported by the NIH, where older adults are in a choir and they're participating in music making activities to improve sensory motor function. And so there's a place, Melissa, you shared, sometimes it's hard to not move when you hear certain music. There's so much (laughs) to learn about music and its interaction with the brain. There's also fascinating research about how rhythm can help people move in particular ways. And there's a recent study where older adults with and without Parkinson's disease, they would mentally sing, row, row, row your boat while walking. And they compared that to playing row, row, row your boat while walking. And I can't believe I said the title of the the song twice. It's a little funny to say in a sentence twice. (laughs) But okay, back to the the findings were that, you know, by mentally singing, um, their gait improved beyond the improvement of just listening to the song. And the idea from that paper and that work is really that it's an internally sourced rhythm. So with sonification and with sound-based biofeedback, will it be perceived as, or, or treated as internally sourced rhythm because your movement and your actions control its rhythm, but it's externally displayed to the people? So where does that really fit on that spectrum? And there, there's a lot that we have to find out about the brain's interaction with sound and music. On top of that, I could keep talking about this, I guess, you know, yeah. but well, we, we could listen all day. Yeah, like, yeah, like, <laughs> there's, there's also, since there are such emotional connections to music, it's really important when designing sound-based biofeedback not to trigger too much emotion as well, because you can imagine you could trigger like PTSD or some different dimensions for people that are very different person to person. So we want things to be supportive of learning the motor task and engaging and motivating, but not to the point that someone's totally carried away and has this giant emotional response too. Yeah, yeah. 
That's so interesting. It reminds me too when we do experiments in the lab and they're so long yeah. and you're like running on the treadmill for an experiment. I'm like, this is so boring. Can I yeah. please play music? And they're like, no. <laughs> um, probably because music I want to play is like going to hype me up and then it's going to mess up the whole experiment. But I guess you don't want it to do the opposite either, you know, and in, invoke mm-hmm. sort of a negative emotions too. So you end up singing yeah, it's really interesting. to yourself while on the treadmill. <laughs> That's a good question. I feel like I'm constantly in a state of singing to myself. <laughs> so, I do that yeah, way too. Yeah. <laughs> Talking to myself, singing to myself. It happens. Dancing to yourself. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, we really – I feel like we could talk about this all day. But I do want to touch on the third part of your lab that you mentioned, sort of the three different areas, and one was sports. I think in your lab website you have – student-driven projects in which students learn firsthand about the mechanics behind their favorite physical activities. So I love that, that you're letting or motivating students to do what they want to do, what they connect with, what they're passionate about. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you came up with that, like letting students do what they're motivated by, pushing them to do that, as well as how you align that with your lab's research and goals? Like how do you kind of satisfy and balance that? It's a those great two question. Interests? It's a question that like, I think it's almost a funny question for me because it wouldn't occur to me to have it any other way. Uh, like <laughs> then to allow students to study what they want to a certain extent, there always has to be some boundaries and there is a reality as a junior faculty member that I sometimes I, I might've remembered a little late sometimes, but in terms of like <laughs> in terms of undergrad projects um, and master's students, projects where they're more short term, you have, you know, an undergrad for 10 weeks over the summer, why not allow them to fully explore (laughs) what they love doing? So we end up having a good number of our research assistants over the summer who are student athletes at Stevens. So there have been some explorations of a lot of them are into baseball, which works out great because we had an existing (laughs) baseball pitching project. But there are some that are like, you know, I'm really interested in track and field. Can I read a, read more about um, rotational throws and in, in more of the field events? And then they dig in and think about the mechanics and then present to us. So it's more exploratory in those projects. Hmm. One of my students, Sam, he's the one that is really passionate about basketball and basketball dunking. Every, not every Saturday, but throughout the the school year, he's had high school students come into the lab on Saturdays. And those high school students, they definitely pick their own projects too. They're like, what if I kick the soccer ball like this versus like this? And then you can really explore and personalize the learning experience. Because when we learn something and we're able to embed it in something that we actually care about, we're much more likely to retain it and continue and open avenues for career um, decisions as well for students. So I think that part's really important. So to me, it's more important than having one sentence to explain all that you do. <laughs> I need I need always a few sentences to do that. Yeah, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And you're saying finding this balance between personal interests, but then you know something that also aligns with the work of the lab. But it it is seem it does seem like it would be more motivating and exciting mm-hmm. for someone to be able to have that freedom to be curious and explore an area that's interesting to them. And um, it's also always interesting. I feel like sometimes when you do that, the ways that you can start to find links to what the lab is working on and kind of look at it 
from a different perspective that opens up new questions too. But something that a theme that I also heard in that response that I know is a, a theme throughout your life is outreach. You're always hosting events for National Biomechanics Day. You've also posted all of your outreach curricula to the American Society of Biomechanics Open Source Teaching Repository, which is really Amazing. I know, like, not an easy feat to not only take the time to host these different outreach events, but then organize it in a way that can be used um, by other people. Can you talk a little bit more about your passion for outreach and how it started and, and why it maintains such an important part of your um, life and career? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to share. Like many of my stories, I was very fortunate as a PhD student my mentor, Jill McNichray, is so amazing and, and would always look for opportunities for us to grow and find our passions, right? And so that kind of connects to the last answer, too. So when I was a PhD student, there was a fellowship that asked PhD students to go into the middle school classroom once or twice a week and teach. And from there, I really kind of caught the bug, if you will, of like making sure that we're sharing biomechanics with everyone, Mm. particularly with young students, especially in middle school, where I think there are many studies that the interest in STEM kind of starts to decline, especially for Mm -hmm. um, young girls in middle school. So I actually, from being in the middle school classroom, really felt like, wow, this is so important. Biomechanics is such an amazing way to connect to engineering and science concepts, bringing in, I try to bring in the arts too, of course, because how can I, how can I not? (laughs) I think it's really important for the future of biomechanics, but I also feel it's important as biomechanists to practice, to explain what are we doing and how are we doing it? And that was part of that fellowship. I think it was, you know, they had a few objectives and one of them was like, we have to get these PhD students out of the lab. (laughs) They have to learn how to describe their research. And, you know, in some ways, what tougher audience than like middle schoolers in a way, right? You have to keep their attention. They're just forming like who they are compared to their parents or their, you know, family members. And so it was really an exciting opportunity. And so from that middle school experience, I created some curricula, some major lessons, if you will. And then from those major lessons, I have branched out and used them for National Biomechanics Days, Day events throughout the years. So those major lesson materials are on my website and also on the teaching repository as well. I think it's just, it's so important. And this, the past few years is a little rough with doing the virtual events. Mm-hmm. It's, but at the same time, of course, you open the door and now we have these recordings. However unpolished they are, that's a different oh, story, yeah. but we have recordings <laughs> for people to access, which is great. And I brought this up because I wanted to say that like, now that we're back in person with the National Biomechanics Day, I saw how important it was for my graduate and undergrad students to go to a high school. Like it was a big, it was mm-hmm. a big deal to even see a high school in, you know, in the New York City area. And it was a, an amazing experience where we visited a dance high, a high school of performing arts and we visited uh, a dance class. And so we do like pretty amazing design challenges with the dancers. Sometimes they're called choreography challenges, but really they're open, <laughs> open-ended designs. Here's a sensor, here's a muscle, make a dance that activates your muscle in high, medium, low or medium, low, high. And, show us that dance afterwards with the EMG 
system on. So I kind of jumped into the details there, but <laughs> but we the ultimate integration of engineering and art yeah, <laughs> and biomechanics. Yeah. And so many of the responses from dancers are like, I didn't know that biomechanics existed. It's such a good blend of what I love to do and my interest in science. So it's really rewarding. And hopefully it opens the doors to the future generation of biomechanics. I love it. I feel like in so many of that first question, answers to that first question we ask of when you first knew you wanted to be a biomechanist, people have a moment of, oh, I didn't even know biomechanics was a thing, or I didn't even know I could study what I love mm-hmm. to do. Like, and it's just, it's to see that moment, to share that moment with so many new students is awesome. And that you're empowering your lab to also do that is just so great to hear. Yeah, it's it's, it's fun to realize that it's my t- time to like get the students going and then I should start really sitting back and watching them make these connections and like solidify their passion for sharing their science. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good point. Like kind of planting the seeds but then really letting them be the ones that I guess grow into their passion or like can then feel like they can take ownership of of their what they're excited about and I'm I'm curious You've mentioned, you know, blending arts and engineering and what we call STEAM, where you like, where you have arts as part of the, as part of STEM. It's very clear in your work how those blend together and influence each other and in a very positive way. And I'm, I'm curious your thoughts though, more generally on, um, how art and engineering can work together. Full steam ahead. That's, that's the saying. <laughs> love yes. it. Love it. So art is the great communicator. So I really like that you're asking this question right after talking about STEAM outreach and community engagement, because one aspect of science and biomechanics that can truly always benefit from art is how we're sharing our scientific findings and scientific fundamentals with the community. And so in our lab, we're really fortunate. We also have artists in residence in our lab. And Whoa. so I'll go through one example with this that I think has brought broad impacts for many biomechanists. So one artist is completely amazing and really embedded herself in our lab. And she was very much from an art world and used to only, not only talking to artists, but definitely not so much engineering and definitely not like, Mm -hmm. oh my goodness, you take people, you put these sensors all over them and then you tell them to be perfectly normal, (laughs) like be themselves, like walk (laughs) like you normally do. And then you take their data and you de-identify it. You take something so personal that is their body and their body's movements and you're taking away their identity. And I was like, whoa, I never thought of it that way, right? And then anyway, I mean, we've had many, many discussions where I just kind of sit there and I never do it justice when I describe it. So even right now, I'm not doing it it justice. But having her in the lab and having these discussions, it really drove our lab to change from using individual markers and using a predefined skeleton in our motion capture system to making sure that we make the switch to these like rigid body clusters of markers very quickly to make it more comfortable, number one, for people, because there's just these like ergonomic clusters of markers that go per body segment. But then we also are not assuming any sort of geometry Mm -hmm. in our 
motion capture, mm. pre-processing or post-processing. Because we're streaming the sonified biofeedback in near real time, we needed like mm-hmm. markers to be identified right away. So we revamped, the students revamped all of that infrastructure. And I think we made that change much sooner because of that, having that artist in our lab and having those, commun- you know, those really deep discussions. So that's just one example that I, I think resonates, at least it'll resonate with people who are working with motion capture. <laughs> but even the, the wearables too, there are, you know, we always try to find the right location for these wearable sensors so that you have great data that represents body segments. But we have to think about how it affects people. And even in some of our work with the with the older adults too, we hear from them like, oh, you know, I show a really cool, what I think is a really cool looking a wearable sensor where it's essentially like a band-aid and then they're like oh well by the way sometimes when you age your skin is really really fragile and really mm. thin and so we just always have to engage and be mindful of humanities and arts in our science and engineering so mm. I loved how you said it's the great communicator. Like it's such a core piece to who we are, how we identify, Mm -hmm. how we share that identity with the world or don't share, right? Parts of Mm -hmm. it like, yeah, maybe not wanting to be perceived in a certain way or not wanting to show one thing. So, and I thank you for sharing. Like, I think there's a number of great tips that I've heard and visions for the future that I've heard in our conversation that already have me inspired and excited Mm -hmm. about like, yeah, how we biomechanists can interact with art and engineers and, and, and users to make the world really a better place. I'll say all that. And then I think like we've talked about so many positives and so many exciting things that I now like to kind of go to the sort of human side of science, which is (laughs) failure. And we love to talk about failure on the podcast and, frame it however you want, but we'd love if you could share a story of a time where it felt like you failed and what you learned from it. Okay. So this is one question that I feel through most of my life I've avoided answering. I really (laughs) have. It's just like... Today's the day. It's just ingrained in me how I... I think how I grew up, it really wasn't a thing to talk about failure or weakness or anything like that, right? So I'm still forming how to answer this. There are so many times that we have to learn things the hard way in a way. And now what's nice about this culture is that it's it's no longer really like the hard way because people are accepting of learning through failure. Failure still to me has this really harsh connotation. So even when I said like, okay, Failure. I was about to, my next sentence was going to be one failure I had. And then I was like, oh, I can't say failure. It's not a failure because I, I learned <laughs> from it too. So, so that's the whole sure, point. Yeah. Right? Like what's the, so for me to answer it, I almost have to just say, you know, like what was something I, I learned the hard way. And I think for me, mm. um, before joining Steven, I studied shoulder biomechanics, which was really fascinating. And this was when I was at Rush University Medical Center. And I was so excited to direct a lab and I was like, oh, well, if we do this study, we have to do all of these things, everything. And, and I realized through realizing that, that, that's, that things that weren't really finishing, right. That I just, mm-hmm. I just had very large scope projects mm-hmm. and I still find mm-hmm. myself doing that because I get overly excited about doing all the things and, you know, like Mm -hmm. making sure that if we collect data, we have 
many different pieces of the pie with like different research questions. So that's something that I'm constantly working on and making sure that there's a set scope that's reasonable. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do think that there were some jarring experiences where it's like, oh, well, that was too much. That that was too much to do. (laughs) That was a little too much to do. Um, yeah. So I don't know. How, a little too much pie. For exactly. One, yeah. thing. Yeah. one of those, can't have too much those pie. festival yeah. pies where it's like, or like the yeah. world's largest pie. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So I think I, I need yeah. a decal on the wall, like keep it simple or like just remember. <laughs> so <laughs> you don't need all that pie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like that's something that so many people can relate to, though. It's like mm. we want to be able to answer all these questions. And especially when you're starting in a new area where there's mm. – it's so ripe for so many interesting questions like like yours is and where you just want to get going and, you know, yeah. answer as many things as you can. And, yeah, it is always this balance, though, of, of what's what's feasible, What how can we break it down a little bit. And, yeah, so it's not – too overwhelming but yeah Yeah. thank you for sharing that and also your thoughts on oh go ahead (laughs) something else that i think now could be considered a failure or just learning the hard way is imposter syndrome because i really thought i was immune to it Mm. for a good portion Mm. of my academic career which i that means i was very lucky but all of a sudden Mm -hmm. when i for the past few years i've really been struggling with imposter syndrome Mm. and feeling like i don't deserve the things that i've received or like the career word in particular. So I would always kind of shy away from the spotlight and feel Mm. it wasn't deserved and really it got in the way. So I would say it got in the, it got in the way of really looking at my research and science in a way that would be really uplifting and motivating. Instead, I was, Mm. I was very fearful. And so I would say too, that that could be, that's a bit of a failure, but it's something that I, it's nice that people are talking about now and and they're talking about imposter syndrome a lot and that Mm -hmm. it's really helpful to always remind people that you're not alone if you feel like insecure about where you are but it's really important to eventually realize and come around that things (laughs) things are going well things that you know like (laughs) when people work hard and are really driven towards the goal like just trust the process there's a little bit of trusting the process that I have now that I really didn't have more recently. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. And it's kind of both. It's like when things aren't going well, it's, it doesn't mean that you aren't where you're supposed mm-hmm. to be necessarily or you aren't worthy of these things. And when things are going well, you know, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily just luck or, you know, you're not deserving of it. And I think those sometimes are default ways of thinking mm-hmm. or ways of thinking that we can all sort of recognize and work to improve upon. So thank you for being so open about that. I think it's also when you're saying you you lucked out and not really feeling that way near the beginning of your career. And I think a lot of students feel that way. And then maybe we feel like once we become a professor or we're not a student anymore, like maybe those things should go away. But it is really humanizing to to realize that everybody has those types of feelings. That's really, you know, everyone's on, we're all on our own paths and we're at different stages. And I'm just really grateful that I'm trusting the process a little bit more now these days. I'm like, okay, just do good work. The rest will follow. Surround yourself with really amazing people. So I have like a lot of people that I always feel very thankful for. I mentioned Jill, but of course the students in my lab are amazing. 
they're so motivated and driven and passionate about what they do. And so it's really nice on this side of things too, to realize that there's, that it's really bi-directional relationship too, where we can follow the science and I can, to a certain extent, follow the students' interests and what's really sparking that, their mm -hmm. motivation. So it's, it's, things are really good these days. <laughs> Yeah, that's fantastic to hear. Yeah, thank you for sharing all of that with us. So we're getting up to our last question. But before that, if people want to learn more about you or follow your work, what is the best way to do that? Hmm. That's something I should know the answer to, too. I mean, I, I'm, <laughs> I, I was going to say, like, the first thing I said was, like, oh, I'm on Twitter. But sometimes I don't post too much or anything like that. I think the website's good. Yeah. I think reaching out is the best by email. But we can share all of that contact info. But I, I try to at least once a year update the website. So, okay, once a year updates of the website is not really the best way to know exactly what's going on. And Twitter, <laughs> Twitter, I'm there. I'm like more of an observer these days, but I'm there. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. We'll definitely include website and um, other links in the show notes. So for our final question, what are you most excited about for the future of biomechanics? I think it's the, the whole idea of getting out of the lab. And that's the most vague mm -hmm. answer. We already talked about that in different ways, right? Like sharing the science, but also the, the doing of the science and, and really with wearables, with new algorithmic approaches, we're opening this whole new avenue for biomechanics. And I really like that we're advancing both kind of like the big data and, and data approaches that, that are kind of a little bit blinded in a way, right? Like some of the machine learning and AI, but it finds the results and it finds the results like without our biomechanical supervision sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then I also really like through the years, I'm just seeing more and more personalization and person-specific person findings being shared at our conferences. So I just like that both of those sides are being advanced at once where people are appreciating the individual, but also developing these more overarching strategies to process data and learn from data. But yeah, we're going to be able to study human movement in realistic context. And we already are. And I, I feel like that's where we have to be. We have to be as close as possible to the real world conditions, even if that's at the cost of having more variability in what we're capturing. Mm -hmm. Totally agree, right? We can never expect to have exactly what we have in the lab outside, but we have so much more that we can play on. Mm -hmm. And hopefully someday, yeah, when your grandmother steps out of bed, she can <laughs> see how her walking is and adjust for the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's really out of the lab. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much um, for all of your thoughtfulness, your eloquence and your answers and just all the work you're doing. It's amazing to see all the facets in the areas that you're touching mm -hmm. and the way that you're doing it in a really human centered way and fun way human centered for your subject or your users, but also for your lab and the people you collaborate and work with. Thank you, Hannah. Yeah, thank you both. This was really yeah. fun. It, the time flew for me. I know. I know. We too. could talk forever <laughs> about this. We really could. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye.